I'm Alan Shreve, and you're listening to The Changelog. Welcome back, everyone. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 210, and today Jared and I talk to Alan Shreve, the creator of the beloved Ngrok. Everyone I know uses Ngrok. We talked about what it is, why it exists, why he wrote it in Go, and ultimately why 1.0 is open source, but 2.0 is not. Our sponsors today are Rollbar and TopTow. Our first sponsor of the show is Rollbar. Rollbar puts errors in their place, full stack error tracking for all applications in any language. And I talked to Brian Rude, the CEO and co-founder of Rollbar, deeply about what Rollbar is, what problem it solves, and why you should use it. Take a listen. How do you build software faster? Like, how do you build better software faster? Um, and there are like there are tons and tons of, of aspects to that. Like, in Ruby is like you, you have a better language, you can have better frameworks that help you be more expressive and more productive. So the flip side of that is like after you've built something that works, or at least mostly works, how do you like go about getting it from working to like in production and actually working? How do you cover the edge cases? How do you find things you missed? How do you iterate on it quickly? And that's kind of where what we're trying to do comes in. So we're trying to say after you shift your software, you're not done. There's still work to do, and we want to help make that process of maintaining and polishing and, and keeping things running smoothly be really, really, really easy. So like developers spend roughly half their time debugging, right? So anything we can do to make that process better is going to have a huge impact. All right, that was Brian Ruse, CEO and co-founder of Rollbar, sharing with you exactly why it fits, why it works for you. Head to rollbar.com slash changelaw. you get the bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. That's basically 300,000 errors tracked totally for free. Give Rollbar a try today. Again, head over to rollbar.com slash changelog. And now on to the show. All right, we're here today talking to Alan Shreve. Now, Alan, he's he's made this thing called Ngrok and a bunch of other stuff. And Jared, we use Ngrok every week when we ship Changelog Weekly. That's right. Where did, where did this topic come from? Obviously we use it, but but where else? That's basically where it came from. So I've been a fan of Ngrok for a long time. Uh, There's lots of tools that do similar type things. Um, This one seemed to be a cut above uh, to certain degrees in certain ways and just really appreciated it. Also noticed that, you know, it's gone through multiple versions and used to be open source and isn't open source anymore. So thought, hmm, this could be an interesting story here. We almost didn't have it on because of that. Yeah, well, we, well, we, we had a little bit of a debate in our in our asked our members right. what they thought about it in terms of, you know, is that an interesting thing or not? Which the, the consensus was, well, let's let's, let's find get out. Alan on and, and talk to him about it and find out what happened and see if it's interesting. So, Alan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, thanks for the really nice intro. Um, it's, it's always a pleasure to hear about people who enjoy the software that I make. So we'll obviously dive deep into Ngrok, and like I said, we fire up Ngrok at least once a week. I do personally to to ship our weekly email. But you know, one thing we like to do is figure out where our, where our guests come from. So obviously, you've got a lot of interesting things happen around Ngrok. You are a fan of Go, which we talked about our our uh, Go podcast called Go Time. But uh, take us back further. Like, help us get to know who you are. What what got you into software development? It was. It was kind of serendipitous uh, how I got into software, actually. Um, my uh, It started uh, when I was going to high school, actually. 
I, our, our high school had a requirement that you had to take one uh, computer literacy class because, you know, computers were the up and coming thing at the time, right? Right, of course. Uh, we wanted to prepare our students for the future, uh, in, in addition to typing, of course, right? So uh, you had your, your choice of uh, a couple classes, and one of them was uh, a class that was called, like, I don't know, it was like, it was essentially like how to use Microsoft Office. Uh, and so I actually like picked that class um, because I figured it would be easy because I knew how to use Microsoft Office. And so I figured I would have to do no work to, to actually like do that class. Um, and uh, my best friend at the time, uh, when I told him that after I came out of the first class, he was like, what are you what are you doing? you're like wasting your time in that class, like come take programming with me. Um, so yeah, I, I listened to him and uh, joined the programming class and uh, like instantly fell in love with it. So um, I really owe a, a lot of it to him. It just seems like a, an unusual way to get into it. So obviously we all listen to our friends, but Microsoft Office, I mean, really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, that, I mean, that wasn't the title of the class, like how to use Microsoft Office. It was like computer like business applications or something. Um, but I, I quickly realized what it was um, the first class that I went into it. And they were like, create a PowerPoint presentation with three slides, <laughs> something simple like that. I gotcha. I can recall feeling cool putting Microsoft Office on my resume at one point in my life. Really? Oh yeah, of course. Like way back in the day when I had no understanding. Yeah, of course. Right. Yeah, proficient with Microsoft Office. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I can I could type in that thing hardcore. Good stuff. So I yeah. went. I so I had a little bit of a similar path in college. So I, I went into MIS, which is Man Management Information Systems, which is basically watered down computer science with some business stuff floated in there. Um, so I very much had like the intro to Microsoft Office type of a course. Uh, and it was just the most boring, worst, just terriblest thing in history. So I'm curious <laughs> to find out how you started from there and then actually continued in towards, you know, writing software and not just switch careers at that point. Oh, yeah, I guess what I um, I'm not sure uh, if I explained it uh, correctly, but basically I was in that class and my my friend told me, like, you're wasting your time in that class. So I transferred out of it. Um, and into like a dedicated programming class instead. Um, oh, okay, I might have to like that. satisfy the the computer literacy requirement that we had in high school. Um, and so it was in that programming class that uh, I actually started to learn how to program um, on Turbo Pascal to start with. Actually, oh, wow, yeah, Turbo Pascal. What's yeah. the difference have between that and Pascal? It? It's faster. It's <laughs> faster. It's a turbo, turbo mode. mode. Yeah. Have Have you guys ever used Turbo Pascal? No. No. Visual Basic, I think, was my intro, and then straight yeah. into Perl and open source from there. And a little C and C plus plus. Turbo Pascal is an interesting environment. Um, it's It's really really well suited to beginners because it basically um, it had like this really distinctive user interface too. Uh, it was just like this blue screen with yellow text for the code by default, at least. I never bothered to learn how to change it. Um, so it felt very like, 
I don't know, I guess it felt very like 80s or 90s um, before my time it felt, I guess. Um, it was, uh, yeah, so it was just this whole environment that like it took up, it was like a full screen mode by default. It wasn't like in a window or anything. So you're just kind of like immersed in the code. Um, and then when you ran the code, there were like two options. One was like run the code and it would like print to like a console window, like what was coming out of standard out. Um, and the other mode that it has what had was like a debug mode where it basically just fired immediately into a step through debugger with this like big yellow line or big, I don't know, I don't remember what color it was that highlighted the line of code that was executing. And it would just step through the whole program for you, which as a beginner, like having to never like learn any, like I didn't have to worry about source control or have to learn how to organize a project or have to learn what a compiler was. Like it was just a, a full environment where there was a run button and a debug button, which was just, it was really great uh, to start out with. Take us from there to Go and Ngrok. Oh man, there's a lot of stuff in between that. <laughs> well, it hit the highlight. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I finished uh, like I finished doing the the programming course in uh, in high school. Um, I eventually, like after I learned Pascal, I learned C, um, and then a kind of a working uh, the most basic knowledge of C plus plus. Um, not how to use it well, of course, but like how to define a class and stuff like that. Um, I kind of actually lost track of programming for a couple of years um, before I got uh, an internship working at a local uh, software firm. Um, my my first job actually was interning for this local software firm that, uh, no kidding, made Fortran compilers, uh, and they still make Fortran compilers to this day. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's one of those things where you're like, wow, someone still does that as like their only line of business. It's crazy. Uh, yeah, so I, I started there. I actually wrote about it recently um, when I was launching Equinox, but uh, I originally started there as an intern where uh, I was actually packaging the software, which at that time meant like physically assembling boxes and like burning CDs and applying C like printing yes. cd labels and stuff duplication like that. stuff like that yeah and yeah what was it about that i mean you got long managers that, that we talk about today back then yeah. it was like a you know a, a, some tape and some cardboard right yeah i was the package manager <laughs> that's a whole different version of it for sure i know right um you said you got lost from programming what what happened to get you lost and why did this internship pull you back yeah, I got kind of lost because um, in between like finishing like the programming course and starting uh, that job, which like in that job, I eventually like transitioned to writing code for them instead of just uh, packing boxes. Um, in between that, I had, I had kind of uh, outgrown what uh, my instructor could teach me. And uh, like resources on the internet for learning how to code and like going beyond what I'd learned um, weren't like nearly as good as they are today. I mean, they're fantastic today, um, but it was really a struggle to find uh, not 
that there were no resources, but it was difficult to find like the next step. I, I always ended up finding things that were below my level or like way above it. And I couldn't find like materials that would get me like that, like understood what I already knew and could push me like gently into new things. Um, so that was that was actually kind of frustrating. Um, so I kind of lost track of it uh, for a couple of years um, while I was sorting that out. I remember I bought a book on uh, Visual C++, which was a horribly misnamed book. It was actually a book on how to write Win32 GDI applications. Mm. Um, so I like made my own paint clone, but it like explained nothing about the underlying model of it. It was like, now you have to send a WM paint command. And I was like, okay, I'll type the W like the code to like <laughs> send a WM paint command. I do not know why I'm doing this. Um, yeah, so that, that was like, that was just a very frustrating time. So you still haven't gotten us back to go now. So, so keep going. Right. We're, we're, we're yeah. following the path. We've, we've hit your internship. You're a, man, you're a manual package manager. You're getting yeah, back so, into software. Keep going. So I actually started, I, write, I started writing code for, uh, for that um, company. Um, and then I, I went to college. I studied uh, computer science at college. So I did a lot of, um, a lot of programming during college. Um, and it, it kind of took off from there. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, after like during college, I did, uh, a number of internships, like trying to find the kind of company that I wanted to work for. So I went through a couple companies. I interned for, uh, VMware and Microsoft and Fog Creek. And, uh, I, I ended up learning essentially that the, the company that I, the ideal company that I wanted to work for was um, a company that was small. I didn't really enjoy like being part of the giant like corporate environment, uh, but also one that was tackling like really difficult technical problems. Um, so I was looking for some combination of small but very hard technical problems, um, which is not always easy to find. Um, it's a lot easier to find now. Um, but at the time it was, it was not, um, super easy to find. So you're, you interned at VMware and, and Fall Creek. Yeah. What was, uh, the kind of things you're working on at VMware? What kind of, what year was that roughly? VMware were, uh, I, I interned at VMware for two summers. Um, those were my first two years of college. Uh, and I was working on the QA team for, um, what they called at the time Virtual Center, but has now been rebranded into something as part of vSphere. I, I honestly don't know because they've changed the branding so much. Of course. Yeah. So I was working, uh, doing QA for them, um, like building essentially like automated test harnesses, that kind of stuff. And then I did the next summer at Microsoft where uh, I got to work on the Windows 7 kernel I actually like worked on the uh, diagnosing like uh, performance issues in the file system driver stack. And then I kind of transitioned away from that entirely, uh, like interning at Fog Creek, uh, where I actually helped them build the very first version of Kiln, which is like their GitHub equivalent for Mercurial. 
mm. posting. Mm. I ask that because you say that you like small companies with difficult problems, and VMware's nothing like that, really. Maybe you're on a small team or something, but maybe maybe you found out what you didn't like about a big company tackling, I guess, a hard problem too. Cause yeah, I mean that uh, that intern like going through those internships was really like the learning experience that brought me to that like understanding before I really didn't know what I would enjoy. Um, but like doing all of those things um, was really helpful to like learn what it was that I was looking for. Those are fairly well-known names too, like household names, so to speak, at least for us. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, when it comes to an internship, I think I'm camping on these questions and I know we're trying to get to your, your experience with go and how you got there. But I'm thinking like for the listeners out there thinking, you know, I want to get established somewhere, maybe a similar path that you're taking. You know, these are household names, so to speak. Uh, you got an internship there. What was the process like or how did you go about getting an internship? Was it just that easy from a college standpoint? Like a, they made it accessible or did you have to like, uh, you know, put, you know, kind of audition, so to speak? What was that like? Yeah, I mean, the, maybe how also how important that was. I guess you just said so, but how important that was to where you're at now. It's hard to say, right? Um, but I, I think certainly it was important for me. Like, uh, I, I always felt um, like having those things on my resume was really valuable. Um, as far as like how to, like how I got those internships. Uh, yeah, I mean, we had like career fairs at uh, at college, um, and like they would, you know, a bunch of companies would come and you would talk to them. Um, it's so. I mean, like VMware had like a, a booth there that I went and talked to. Part of it, of course, uh, you know, nothing is, is always that cut and dried. Like part of it was kind of uh, um, that uh, my friend's brother worked at VMware at the time. So um, I had an in there. Uh, nice. And so he was, you know, able to, to help like take a chance on me, um, which I'm, you know, internally grateful to him for. So, um, you know. Sometimes, lots of times. Yeah, and uh, the other internships, I don't know. Uh, one of my friends interned at Microsoft uh, one of the summers and was like, you should try it there. Like, I had a really good time. So that uh, he, like, introduced me to those recruiters. It's a good sales pitch. I'm going to try that. Yeah, right? Um, <laughs> Bug Creek was the only one that I kind of went into blind, where I just applied blindly to them. Um, and they're like, probably the smallest was, team of those easy. teams. Sorry? Uh, they're probably the smallest teams of those teams. Like, I mean, oh, Microsoft's yeah. huge. VMware's huge. Twilio was small. Now they're bigger. Sure. Um, you know, that wasn't in your mention of internships, but it's on our list of where, you, where you've yeah. been before. But and then Fall Creek seems to be, maybe they're getting larger now. Sure. Um, growing, obviously, small. but they started out, you know, a fairly small team. Yeah, I think they were maybe like 30-ish people um, when I interned there. Uh, 30 or 40, something like that. Uh, like applying for the internship there was pretty easy, though, um, because if you, I mean, like, I'm not saying that it was easy to get in, but uh, as far as like doing all the right things, like they wrote up, Joel, I think, wrote up a blog post of like, if you want to intern at our company, you should do all of these things. So like I read like that you know, blog post and did all of those things. Uh, and that was, you know, they, they definitely made it accessible. And I think a lot of companies are trying to follow that example, right? Like I've heard it's pretty commonplace for 
companies that you interview at these days to kind of provide you with um, this is what you expect when you come into the interview. Like these are the kind of questions that we're going to ask. Um, and, and I'm really in favor of that kind of uh, attitude of like not just like uh, taking candidates uh, and bringing them in blind where they have no idea what to expect. Um, but instead, like taking candidates and saying, like, we want to set you up to succeed. We're coming up close to our first break, so we still haven't gotten to yeah. Golang. We still haven't gotten to really where open source fits into all this. So we obviously have to crack that nut open. But let's, let's take a break real quick, hear from a sponsor. When we come back, we'll talk about maybe get a little closer to your path to Golang and then also how open source fits in. So we'll be right back. We love TopTal, and one of the interesting things about TopTal is being able to take control of your career, being able to work on technologies you want to work with, being able to work with companies you want to work with, choosing your own salary, being able to travel. And I talked to Asael Arenas, the community manager for TopTal South America, and I was blown away by what this guy had to say, so take a listen. To be tied to a desktop these days is something that definitely I think that people should, uh, is not necessary for developers. If there are still developers, and I'm sure there are a lot of developers still tied to their desktops, I will let them know about uh, about Total, about this company that will give you like the opportunity to, to drive your own career, you know? You can decide how much time you want to work, how much you want to earn, where you want to work from, when you want to work. So what else? All that is possible. All right, that was Top Tops Community Manager for South America, As Ayalarinas. He's living a dream, he's traveling the world, he's getting paid, he's doing what he wants, he's choosing his own path. And if that's what you want to do, call up on TopTal, T-O-P-T-A-L.com. Tell them the Changelog sent you. If you want a personal introduction, email me, adam at changelog.com. And we're back from the break with Alan. We're talking about, I guess we're trying to get to, to, to the open source path here. Obviously, uh, Jared and I mentioned and Grok, and that's an interesting project of yours, obviously, and you're uh, a fan of Go. So, where did where did your path to Go begin? At what point did you get to to that? I know Go has been out for like what six years now, roughly, uh, a little yeah. somewhere around there. So, at what point did you pick up Go? I picked up Go uh, towards the end of my time at Twilio, actually. Um, not not that it actually had anything to do with Twilio at all. It's just uh, timing where I was working at the time. Yeah. Um, it, it, I guess it kind of had a little bit to do with uh, the work that I was doing at Twilio. Um, I was working uh, with my friend, Jeff Lindsay there. And uh, we know we Jeff. Were, yeah. Jeff's a great guy. We've had Jeff on the show before. Yeah. He's awesome. And uh, at the time, Jeff was really into uh, asynchronous programming in Python. And we had uh, a couple of services at Twilio that were written in Twisted Python. And Jeff was a big proponent for um, another asynchronous uh, Python technology called G-Event. And uh, so I had started like, building some stuff with that at Twilio. And when Go came out, uh, you know, I was kind of eyeing it. And I was like, this looks like it's the G event model, uh, but not a hack on top of some other language that this is that programming model uh, 
at the core of the design. And that really appealed to me. Um, so that's kind of like what instantly got my interest about Go. Uh, just to kind of expand on that, like the way that GeoVent works is basically uh, it's built around, whereas like Twisted Python or Node um, are built around uh, an event loop with callbacks when events happen. Um, GeoVent and similar technologies are built around the idea that the runtime should handle that for you. So you can basically spin up uh, these things called um, green threads, user mode threads, uh, that you would pretend like they were when you did IO or any other kind of uh, operation that would block the event loop normally. Um, instead of like having to manage that yourself, you would actually like make those calls as if they were blocking calls. Uh, but the runtime would be smart enough to realize that they were blocking calls and manage the event loop for you. So they would basically take that user mode thread that was about to block on a blocking call and put it uh, on its own scheduler queue and then stick uh, an async IO event into the event loop that it managed. So that's you know, the very basic intro into uh, how those, those technologies sort of work. And uh, that's that was what GeoVent did, but it was it was like a hack on top of Python, right? Because Python wasn't built right. for that, so it did like really clever things, like manipulating the Python stack frames uh, and mm. stack pointers to actually like do things like that. Um, so when I saw Go, I was like, "Wow, this is like that model of like we should just build our code as if like all of these threads are blocking, but the runtime should handle that complexity for us." Uh, so that was that was what got me into it. It's nice when that's built right into the language, as opposed to you know implemented in a library or added on later. Yeah, it allows you to do a lot of things uh, better, right? When it's just built in at that core level, right? GEvent always had these problems where you would you would worry about every dependency you brought in because if that dependency like did any kind of uh, blocking I/O. You had to worry like did it did it actually block or did like gevent manage to monkey patch those calls so that it wouldn't block or did it do the io in a c like in c somewhere so you couldn't deal with it at all um, and you had like no visibility into these sorts of things and it was a real pain um, so go having all of that built in was was really awesome yeah. so i started building like a couple um, like just toy projects in Go uh, to kind of fool around with it. Um, and then at some point, I actually decided that I, I wanted to learn um, to actually like build a substantial thing in it. So and that's Ngrok your big first substantial thing, or did you have some, some prior art? Yeah, no, Ngrok was the first thing. Uh -huh. um, that's, uh, Ngrok was originally uh, a project built to learn Go. That was about it. Um, one of the strategies, like the strategy that I really love for learning a new technology is to take an existing project and port it, uh, into the new framework or the new technology uh, or the new language or whatever it is that you're, you're trying to learn, um, exactly. So that's, that's what I did with Ngrok. 
Uh, the reason I, I like that is because when you build things, at least for me, I get all up in my head about what it is that I'm going to build, right? Suddenly it becomes like a product and I have to make product decisions where I was like, should it do this? Should it not do that? Whereas if you port something, all of those decisions are made for you. It becomes more like an academic, like a class project where all the requirements are defined up front. You like that entire cognitive load is gone. Um, so that's a, uh, and Grok was essentially that. It was a port of uh, Jeff's uh, tool, Local Tunnel, actually. I recall talking about Local Tunnel, actually, back on 99, if I recall. We talked about Flynn, Tent, Local Tunnel. Um, yeah. that's, that's really interesting. So was Local Tunnel in Python? It was, yeah. And so you were interested in, obviously, learning Go, but then porting something to it and making it a serious project. Yeah, that kind of happened accidentally, really, um, that it turned into a serious project. Uh, it was really just a project to learn Go to start with. And uh, Local Tunnel was a project that seemed like relatively small and well-contained and seemed, from what I knew, like a decent fit for, for Go um, because it was pretty network heavy. Um, so yeah, that's, I kind of picked it up and ran with it and, uh, it just kind of spiraled out of that. Were you surprised by the success of it? I mean, I know when it first came out, which I can recall back, it was probably like, uh, I'm guessing at least, uh, two and a half, maybe three years is my guess, roughly as far back as at least, at least I knew about it. And it seemed like, uh, an obvious problem for a large amount of people. So did it seem like a, like a surprised you that it was successful uh yeah i guess it, it was surprising that it was successful because it was just a clone that was kind of what surprised me um about it actually taking off yeah it was about three years ago now and is so much cooler sounding than local tunnel <laughs> i mean <laughs> I, I cannot begin to tell you how excited i was when i found a five letter pronounceable dot com available it was just, it was a beautiful moment. Yeah, and I'm just telling Jared in the back, I'm like, I'm really interested in the name, obviously N stands for network, but, but uh, why Grok, I guess, to understand the network? The one thing that I did, like, as I, uh, after, like, I had cloned it and was happy with it, I, like, started to, like, think about other things that I would like in terms of the product, right? So I worked at Twilio, so I was dealing with webhooks um, all day. And when we built, you know, so I, I built a lot of like Twilio applications for testing. And when you built a Twilio application, it was this really frustrating exercise because you would pick up the, you would like write your code. And with even with like local tunnel or NGROC or an SSH tunnel, um, you would pick up the phone and like dial a number or send a text message uh, to actually like cause Twilio to call back to your code and trigger it to run. And that was, uh, so you do that once, but you know, it was always broken, right? So it would break and then you would try to fix it. And then you would do the same thing again. You would like pick up the phone. So I just end days with like a call log of like 40 calls to this one random number, you know, uh, just to like try to get the application working. And so I started like thinking about the kind of things that if I were working on that, uh, type of application that would make it easier for me. 
And one of those was that I wanted to see all of the traffic that was flowing across the wire. That was really important, um, as well as being able to replay it. So, uh, yeah, like the introspection part of it was was kind of new and uh, or, or wasn't at least in, in any of the other tools. And I like the idea of like being able to introspect things and look at them as they're happening. So the name is kind of just a, a play on the word, the, the word grok coined by uh, Heinlein, which is like to understand and uh, and because there are a whole bunch of other like network tools that start with N, it's kind of a play on ngrep. Um, it's weird. It it doesn't actually mean that to me anymore. That was like the genesis of it. But to me, it, it just kind of is its own definition now. I think what um, one thing about this tool that, that impressed me, uh, a few things. First of all, you do a really good job of explaining its value proposition on the website. And so it's one of those tools that once you know you need something, you want to expose your local development environment to somebody who's not on your network, right? You, you need NAT traversal, you need all these things. You may not understand exactly how to get all that done, but you're like, man, I wish I could just, just give somebody a URL and they could actually access my, this demo that I have on my machine. Um, you do a really good job of explaining like, hey, this is what that tool does. And so I think that that was immediately impressive. And then the 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 fact that it is just a single go binary, drop it into your path and it runs, um, which has been kind of a flagship feature of Go for a long time. It's just the easy distribution um, makes for a good first experience. And then thirdly, that it did a lot of like the little details that just are really nice. And I'll just give us a, a single example. Um, and this might be Ngrok 2.0 and it wasn't in 1.0, so you can help me sort that out. But for instance, when you're actually running the thing, it will you know, show, show you there, there's a little display in your terminal that shows the URLs and like you said, the, the introspection if you want it, what's going on. But there's an even time where it, it detects an upgrade and it, like, there's a new binary you can download and it just says hit control U to update itself. And so while you're running it, you just hit control U and there it does goes out and downloads and upgrades itself, and if I had to restart the program for it to to run the new version, but little stuff like that that you just don't expect from an open source project. And so I'm curious, like where your attention to details come from, like where, why you put so much time and effort into this, and uh, just like you to kind of just speak to that. Yeah, uh, the updating thing. I was I was really psyched about uh, getting that working when I did. Um, really nice. It went through a lot of iterations. Actually, it was there was uh, an updating component to uh, version one too. Um, sorry, version one as well. Uh, yeah, I I don't know. Like I, as far as my strengths go in in terms of like building things, um, I think of myself. Uh, partly as a software engineer and the other part, uh, the other strength that um, I feel like I have is, is product design. Um, and so a lot of that is uh, just that attention to detail of just trying to round every sharp corner, um, constructing error messages that are helpful and useful. I'm still really not happy with the error messages that Ngrok kicks out. I've kind of been on a mission lately where it's my goal to have every error message that Ngrok issues have a unique 
code number that comes out of it mm. so that uh, with like a unique prefix for ngrok with the idea being that if there's any error that you should actually, it should be like a unique string that you can put into Google uh, that will only point you at that particular issue. Uh, that way, like, if someone like has that issue and tells me about it, that I'll know exactly what it is or that I could like write up documentation for each one with like, this is what happened, right? Because you only have so much space inside of a terminal to actually like, yeah. tell people what went wrong and how to fix it. Um, but like to be able to like link to like walkthroughs and guides or or possible like reasons that this like, sort of thing happened um, in documentation that would be really easy to find with a unique code. Yeah, that's a great idea. I think there's I've seen a few projects starting to do stuff like that. I know Angular um, at some point started introducing kind of expandive like their error messages would have you know short URLs in it, and it's like here's like the brief description of this thing. But yep. in the console, like click here, and it'll actually just expand out to a full page that has all sorts of extra information. And I think that's super useful. So, have you achieved? Have you been able to achieve the unique uh, ID for every error yet, or is that an aspiration? I'm I'm getting closer. It's it's certainly not all the way there, but um, it's it's probably about half there. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. So I, I really like, I really love uh, building product experiences that, that people love. And so a lot of the drive that I have in software is like to make, to take really hard things and like solve them, but make them really accessible to people, mm -hmm. um, which is not, I don't know. There, there are a lot of projects that I use that I get very frustrated with because they do really cool things. But the the user experience is often really poor with them. So I've always wanted to like I always enjoy like making things like very polished and very nice. And and the auto updating experience was definitely part of that for Ngrok. Um, I spent a lot of time like learning how other people did it and uh, researching what would be the best ways to do it. And I still got all of those things wrong to start with. Um, but I've been iteratively getting better at them. I recently actually just took all of that learning from building the auto update experience and uh, kind of spun it out as its own product recently. Hmm. I think there's some lessons to be learned here. You know, it doesn't just apply to open source, but you know, for software development uh, in general, especially when your target audience is developers, um, is is when you sweat the details, it pays off. I think in spades because developers probably more so than any other people because we know we understand you know what's happening like we understand what's going on when when an auto update is, is occurring or you know when this happens and and when you sweat those details those little things that you know uh, people may or may not even notice really set pieces of software apart from the pack even if they're you know serving the same purpose um because we appreciate the level of effort that goes into that, even if it's the value that it brings is minor. You know, I'm not saying that an auto update is a minor value. I think that's a pretty big value. But just some of the little um, pieces of, you know, the, the polish on this software, like you said, it was a clone. So it's not, it's definitely not a, a new idea. It's not a, a standalone product that nobody else is doing. And so it's like, wow, this is singularly valuable, but it works well. And it's, it's, it was crafted with care and 
your audience is, is developers mostly or network people. And we tend to care about those things. So, um, you know, a lot of success, frankly, in open source is, you know, can be serendipity, right, right place, right time, uh, those kind of things. Sometimes it is uh, based on merit. Sometimes it's not. But I think if you just sweat the details like you have, Alan, I think you're giving your, your particular tool a better shot. Thanks. Yeah, I, that's really gratifying to hear um, because I care a lot about the details. So I'm, I'm always glad when other, when other people care about them as well. That's mm-hmm. uh, it's a good feeling. On the note of success, I would actually probably say that because I have some sort of background knowledge on another project that could have been or probably was just as good and i'm just saying that lightly i don't mean that for sure because there was a web service behind it a uh, an installable client things like that but i had a friend or i guess still has still have a friend we just haven't talked in a while but a, a friend who roughly around the same time ingra came out was had solved a problem like this but wanted to make it a paid service mainly because they were wanting they wanted to do something similar like you they wanted to do something serious that uh that was outside of their normal job that could potentially grow some legs and do something interesting. Um, but something about Ngrok, I would say Ngrok itself, but also the fact that it was open source. So I think my hat tip to you is like, I think that, and maybe you can agree is that open source really was, or it being open source and being the way it was. And so available to people that solved a great problem very, very well, like Jared's talking about was a core underpinning to its success. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, I think that uh, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people like open source uh, for for a number of different reasons. Yeah. Um, but there are a number of people who will give you the, um, who just simply like it on principle. And so that's the only kind of software that they want to use. Um, a lot of people like it for the hackability, right? Um, that they can change things in it. Um, and so, uh, being able to like tap into those developers by making a project open source is a really powerful way um, mm-hmm. to get adoption for anything that you're building. I guess a side note, two of the other project I mentioned <clears throat> is that the uh, that project right now is um, is no longer. Oh, you win. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a competition. I, wasn't, I, yeah. I know that, but I mean, it's just sad face. It's a sad face, but I think it's interesting to, to at least for me, because I have a different perspective than you, because you didn't know this before me telling yeah. you this, but yeah. like all along, I've been watching you two in oh. parallel to a degree and have seen you rise. And I imagine it's for the reasons we all know that open source is easily adopted and it's easily contributed to, and you can go in and change it if you want. You can you know, work hard and become a maintainer or become a contributor or whatever. Um, and whereas a proprietary software that is, I guess, to a degree simple enough that should be open source, maybe even better is open source because it is infrastructure. Uh, maybe I'm just trying to say that I think maybe open source was the better way to go, obviously. You know, for somebody out there who may be thinking, should I close source this? But now you aren't really open source anymore. So that could be yeah. the flip. That's, you know, it could be the flip. True. I think that's uh, I think that's a perfect teaser for yes. the next segment, which is that you know you 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 built this tool, made it open source, huge success. I mean, even to this day, Ngrok One has like seven thousand stars on GitHub, lots of people using it. 
Um, People even bake it into for, their products too, like their software. Right. They're open source, like, yeah, you know, fire up NGROF to do this. Like, it's become right. a a thing that people use daily. That being said, like I've, I happily upgraded to NGROC 2 without even a thought because I was, <laughs> I was happy to use of NGROC 1. Yeah. So let's talk about that after this break. The switch, NGROC 2 closed source. Um, what happened there? What was the decision? And all sorts of stuff around open versus closed after the break. For those of you out there who are super fans, and I mean people who care about this show, listen every single week, care that we stay on the air. We want to invite you to join the membership community for just 20 bucks a year, and we'll give you an all-access pass to everything we do, access to our members-only Slack room, exclusive discounts from our partners, 50% off in the Changelog store, and of course, you support us so we can support open source. Head to changelog.com membership to learn more, and we appreciate your support. All right, we are back with Alan Shreve talking about NGROC 1 versus NGROC 2, open versus closed, and what was probably a big decision to release NGROC 2 as a binary and keep the source to himself. So, Alan, tell us about this decision, this change, where it came from, and why you made it. Yeah, um, it, it actually was not like a decision that I made at any one point in time. It was kind of... A, an overarching decision that lasted for like a year uh, as I was building NGROC 2, maybe a year and a half. It took a while to actually build that out. It's an interesting, it's a really hard decision. It was a really hard decision. Uh, it still is. Um, when, I, when I started building NGROC 2, the idea was like, I, I'm building it with like all of the source code just in a private repository. Um, and then when I get towards launch, like I'll actually uh, open source all of it. So part of that was that when I started building NGROC 2, I started building it in a more modular way, in a way that the intention was to take like a whole bunch of like different libraries and open source them. Uh, so that they like all of these individual libraries that were used to build NGROC 2 would actually be open source. And that actually happened. Like a lot of the technology that is used to build uh, NGROC 2 is open source. Um, the actual, uh, so like one of the, the projects that I built for this is a project called Log15, which is um, like a structured logging package for Go. Um, which allows you to build like reusable handlers and reusable hand, uh, handler structures. Um, so that ended up being open source out of it. And then another piece was uh, the actual like network layer that does stream multiplexing to actually run a whole bunch of uh, connections over a whole bunch of virtual connections really over a single TCP connection. Uh, that ended up being open source as well. That's a project uh, called Muxadu. Uh, that's on my GitHub as well. And uh, both of those projects have, uh, you know, been successful in, in one way or another, that they've been useful to other people, um, which I guess is uh, a decent metric for uh, success of a project. So, like, a lot of the stuff actually did end up being open source. The actual, like, product uh, that was built on top of those libraries is kind of what didn't. So it sounds like you've modularized the underlying infrastructure, kept that open source, and built 
what was before open source Ngrok into it sounds like potentially an actual product that people will pay for on top of the open source that made Ngrok one. Yeah, that's uh, it. Actually, like wasn't built on top of version one. It was essentially a complete rewrite. There's almost zero code that's shared across them. Honestly, why, um, why, why the big rewrite instead of just continuing to evolve what you had? Yeah, I mean, it was basically uh, a result of a couple things. One was that uh, Ngrok was a project to learn Go. And when you're learning things, you make a lot of mistakes. There are a lot of things that you don't understand, a lot of things that you think you're smarter than other people who have been working on it for a while. Um, so I made a lot of mistakes, a lot of uh, things that, you know, looking back on them that I'm not proud of uh, the way that it was built. Mm. Um, and the other part was that the scope was changing. The scope for Ngrok 2 was not uh, this thing where there is a single like server binary uh, that the Ngrok client connects to, but um, I wanted to make it a very reliable service, right? One of the, one of the other pieces of, of quality from a product design that isn't so much UX that I care a lot about and put a lot of work into and that you see very little of from like a user is uh, reliability and stability of the service. And so a lot of work goes into that. And one of the pieces that went into that was building out the server component in a way that it was distributed across many machines so that it could tolerate arbitrary machine failure. And these days, actually, uh, I, I actually just released this last week is that Ngrok actually now operates in multiple regions around the world. Um, so there are actually like HA setups in a number of different data centers that coordinate with each other to actually run a global Ngrok service. And that's a very far cry away from uh, there is one machine that runs the Ngrok service. Sure. Uh, so actually like re-architecting it for that scope basically involved a complete rewrite. So is it fair to say that the decision around this is financial? Yeah, that's totally fair to say. There are, you know, I was building it out and one of the, it's mostly financial. There are some other things in it um, as well, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like building a business model around open source is a tricky thing. And there, there are a couple ways that you can do it. Um, mm -hmm. Like, there's the we do support model, right? You know, like we give away all the source and then this runs some critical piece of your infrastructure. So you pay us essentially insurance is kind of what it is. The like, if it breaks, you have a direct line to someone who can help you fix it. Right. Um, there's also like the open core model, right? Where you like give away most of it, but you charge, you know, large amounts of money for uh enterprise features like i don't know single sign-on or something like that audit trails similar to how like a sidekick is is in that model where there's the open source community version and then there's sidekick pro which okay there's kind of der there's derivations of that where you have kind of enterprise which has enterprise -y features but pro sidekick pro is more like sidekick plus plus seems like that model could have possibly worked for you did you did you did you battle around all these ideas as far as different ways of doing it? Or did you throw your hands up in the air and say, well, I'm just going to keep it closed? Totally. Um, the other model that was the one that I considered most seriously was the 
um, the model that like Sentry uh, takes and and Docker as well, right? For Docker Hub at least, which is like uh-huh. all of the code is open source. There's nothing that's like a closed add-on, but we run the service for you, right? And so right. running the service is the the piece that's like too complicated um, that you don't want to deal with, right? So you pay someone else to do it. Uh, so that was the one that I considered most seriously, and. I ended up having problems with all of them. One of them was like the support model was is based entirely around uh, your product being core to like someone else's production infrastructure. That's like the thing that mm-hmm. you pay insurance for. And NGROC right. right now is not that. Um, it may be in the future, but at the moment and certainly at the time, it was a development tool. And so if it breaks, like your developers are kind of unhappy, but it's not something where you're like, oh, man, we need to have Alan on the line, you know, right at uh, in 30 minutes notice to let us to help us fix it if Ngrok goes down. So that one was was kind of out for, for Ngrok, which was kind of validated because I never really got any, you know, interest from people who were like when it was open source, they were like, hey, can we pay you for support? Uh, and the other model that was seriously considered was like running it as a service. And it kind of, the trouble that I had was it, with it was that it kind of put me at odds with making the product really great from a server standpoint. Um, I feel like a lot of companies that have this, like, well, you can run it yourself on your, like, or you can use our hosted service, um, don't put a lot of work into usability when it comes to installation on your own service right because they're not incentivized to they're actually like financially incentivized to not make that good right so that you're mm-hmm. more likely to be like oh man i don't want to stand up like rabbit mq and a database and all this other kind of stuff to like make this work uh let's just pay someone for it and ngrok was kind of in this interesting place where it didn't really require a database. It didn't really require any infrastructure. It was just a binary, right? The the server installation was such a simple thing that uh, you know I put work into making it straightforward um, and really easy. And so there were, you know, I had like talked with a lot of customers who um, were basically like, yeah, I mean, we we would we could have paid you, but like we basically had no reason to. Um, and part of that is is part of uh, like the reason that that happens is is partly because it was designed that way, but also like the product itself doesn't have any like persistent piece, right? It doesn't like store your requests on the server or do any of those other kind of things that require more complicated infrastructure like a database or a message queue or those kind of things. So I wasn't particularly happy with either of those options. And so when I launched it, it was kind of launched in a mode of well, I'll keep the source closed for now, and like we'll see if if it makes sense in the future. If there are like more pieces that I can open source, or maybe if I can find a way to open source the whole thing without jeopardizing the business model. Yeah, that was that was kind of the thought around it. The other like piece of it that went into the calculation was if if I made it open source and like couldn't get paid to work on it full time, right? If like that wasn't enough money to to make it a sustainable business, would it be better for the product and for its users to have it be 
to have it remain a side project, right? Something that, you know, got my attention whenever it happened, like whenever I had the time, um, or would it be better for the product and for the users to be in a place where it was like, I can work on this full time mm. and dedicate all of my energy to it. So, so I guess I have two questions you can yeah. take them in order or take them however you like. Um, the first one is where, where does the paid product begin with Ngrok 2? Because like I said before the break, I, I happily upgraded. I don't know which version you're running, but I wasn't taking advantage of any of the open sourcedness of it. I was just using it as a, as a, as a tool uh, mm-hmm. when I need it. And we're very casual users. I mean, like Adam said, we use it to expose uh, a web server to campaign monitor so they can suck in some HTML and I'll use it to develop a webhook here or there. You know, so we're very casual users. So tell us where the product, you know, the paid side, like what model you decided to go with in terms of the paid stuff that Ngrok 2 uh, has. And then as a follow-up to that, you know, if you will, give us some insight into how it's going and, and kind of the status of Ngrok as a paid product. So yeah, Ngrok 2 still has uh, like a very generous free tier. Um, and most casual users never really break out of that free tier. Um, the, you know, and that's, that's been something that I've been trying to, that I've been thinking about like over the past year is like, do I want to consider that lead gen or do I want to actually um, take more things away from it that it incents people to upgrade? But, you know, it's, it's a difficult calculus. Like I don't want to cripple the product. Like I still want it to be like, uh, I still want that like really great initial user experience of like you download it and like run a command and like it's instantly working and like there's no like please pay sort of thing immediately right that you like immediately get value out of it so the major uh it's it's kind of all uh advanced features that that people um that are in the the paid tiers today so one of those is like end-to-end encryption is a thing that ngrok does uh that you can pay for um, where instead of Ngrok essentially like terminating your TLS traffic at uh, its servers and then re-encrypting it uh, as it transfers over the tunnel, that instead Ngrok actually like inspects the incoming TLS connections and multiplexes those to your backend so that you can actually do end-to-end encryption where Ngrok is just a router essentially at that point on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that, that kind of most people tend to upgrade for is uh, uh, custom domains. Is uh, Right now, on the free version, you always get a random domain when you start Ngrok. Um, so allowing people to pick a custom subdomain of ngrok.io or even being able to uh, run a tunnel over their own domain name, right? So like dev.inconstrievable.com is like yeah, a tunnel. Yeah, kind of white labeling it to a certain degree. Yep, that's that's a paid part of the paid features as well. As long as as well as like some additional like uh, businessy stuff, like IP whitelisting is another thing that's part of the paid tiers. Things like that. What's IP whitelisting do? Uh, it basically lets you restrict the incoming connections to your tunnel endpoint to a certain set of IPs. Gotcha. Right. Interesting. So, question two. So how's it going? Like give a give us a some insight into Ngrok as a paid product. You also have Equinox. You can talk about that in light of like how are you doing it, making a business out of this. So the great news is that Ngrok is a sustainable business. Um, 
which is nice. awesome. Uh, which means that I get to dedicate all of my time to it, um, which is really exciting. Um, and it's why that it's it's why that it keeps getting better. Really, is that I actually have all of my time to devote to it. And uh, as far as Equinox goes, um, the work on that is actually it's kind of work on Engrock in itself. Um, part of like what, did, what is Equinox first? Sorry, yeah, Equinox is. Uh, we talked earlier about the auto updating experience that Ngrok has, where you can just like it detects that there's a new version. You press Control U and it updates itself. So Equinox is all of that functionality around uh, building and a self-updating Go program packaged into a service for you. So it does that as well as like packaging and distribution. Like if you have a Go program, it will package it up to. Uh, into an MSI for Windows and like a PKG installer for OS X and like it creates a custom homebrew tab for you so that when you release new versions like you maintain all of those things. It was Equinox was kind of like built out of uh, this desire to make the installation experience better, right? Sure, like there are a huge number of developers for whom you can hand them a zip and be like, Here's the zip. It has a binary inside, like unzip it and run it. And that works for, you know, a large majority of people. But Ngrok's user base is huge. Um, and it includes a lot of people who are not technical, uh, like at all. People who have never used the command line before. And so uh, being able to be useful to them means a better installation experience, uh, a better updating experience. Um, all of those things. So Equinox is kind of the the work that's been put together to make that better. And so it's been packaged up as a separate thing uh, with the hope that it'll be useful to other people. Just looking at uh, version 1 versus version 2, it seems like 1.0, mm -hmm. the original open source version, wasn't what you wanted it to be in the long term. And now with 2.0, you're able to open up a uh, web interface to it, you know, obviously have custom domains, be able to look at traffic, things like that. I'm wondering if the web interface and the command line interface has a similar or mirrored experience. Yeah, so that like all of those things were actually present in 1.0, actually. Um, like there was a introspection interface as part of uh, version one. And uh, there was a website, like a dashboard for version one as well. Um, it wasn't as the website at least wasn't as fully featured as it is now, um, but there was one that existed. As far as them being mirrored, uh, well, I just mean like, are they similar? Do they have similar features? Like, do you get more if you use the web interface versus the command line interface? Is there things that just maybe aren't present on both on either side? I see. Uh, there. Yeah, they're not really mirrors. They're, there are a couple things that are in common there, but uh, it's not like you can exclusively use the web interface to work with Ngrok. If you want to start it, you do have to use the command line um, to start it. Right. But once it's running, uh, you can kind of, if you want to look at the requests that are going over the tunnel, that's the only thing that's really mirrored is like the, the status interface that you see in your terminal and that you see in the local web interface. Um, those are pretty much the same, except that the web interface is much more detailed because it just has a lot more screen real estate to work with. 
and you know things like CSS and graphics, right? <laughs> of course. I have a hypothetical for you, and it's a uh, yeah. It's easy for me to say because it's your livelihood and not mine. But what do you think would happen if you took what you currently have, which is an Rock Two as a product that's being both used for free by some people and paid for by some people, and you just took that and you didn't change anything in the model, but you just hit you know open source on that repo? What do you imagine would would be the fallout or the change from from that dramatic you know button click? That's a really great question that I do not know the answer to. It's one of those. It's <laughs> well, one of those questions you to that, like, here. I wish I knew the answer to that question. Yeah, um, and like, honestly, maybe one day, like, I will do that and I'll find out what the answer to that question is. Um, well, email us when I'm you really do, and we'll have you come too. back on the show and talk about what happened. Yeah, um, that like that would be a really interesting experiment. Um, and I'd love to run it, but that's kind of the unfortunate part is it's one of those things where you, it's one of those experiments that you can't, you can't really do it. run, right? Yeah. This probably is one of the first times, Jerry, we've had somebody come on the show that started open source and went closed source and, it, and is to a degree considering going back to open source. Well, yeah. so far as I've asked him to. Well, it sounded like earlier he was saying that too, like he was hoping that he can eventually potentially open source even the code, even though like paid features will be there. I mean, did I hear you wrong, Alan? No, that's totally right. Uh, the, the goal is to find ways to open source parts of it. Um, yeah. Maybe eventually the whole thing. Like I've toyed around a long time with the idea of open sourcing just the client, um, yeah. which might be a thing that happens. Uh, part of it might be actually taking just the protocol for actually like setting up the tunnel um and actually exposing that as like an open source piece as well or finding ways to i don't know maybe experimenting with something like uh, what sourcegraph has done where they're you know they have their own kind of modified open source license which uh still requires people to pay them for it's it a fair source right the fair source license right, yeah right. but yang actually speaking of Source graph. We're going to have Biang back on uh, Goat Town. We actually were going to record with Biang, but then it got rescheduled, so he hasn't come back on yet. But we mentioned Goat Time before, and obviously Equinox and this isn't Go, but that's a really good, interesting, a really interesting example because Fair Source, the license there was written, I think most licenses are written by lawyers, at least to some degree, but this one was actually written by a lawyer. That's very familiar with open source and very involved in open source. That was trying to liberalize this license work and actually provide the right kind of things that open source needs, but also the right kind of things a business needs. Which yeah. is is kind of interesting to think about that. I'm I'm really excited about those kinds of efforts. Um, yeah, they're really exciting. Uh, I don't like I don't know how they're going to go, um, but I'm hoping for the best. Fair source. Well, if you're interested in that as a listener, I guess go to gotime.fm and hit subscribe. Yes. You'll be hearing about Sourcegraph, and I'm sure they'll be talking about Fair Source on that show as well. Alan, let's get to our closing questions. Unfortunately, we're getting near the end of our time here. The first one we have for you, which is one of our favorites, is Programming Hero. So if you had to name somebody who's been a mentor or an inspiration or a hero of yours in programming, who would that be and why? It's a hard question. Um, 
there are, there are so many uh, programmers that I look up to and respect. Um, one of one of the um, I guess more famous people that I've looked up to is uh, that that I guess I'm really impressed with is uh, John Carmack. Um, I don't know if you guys have read Masters of Doom or you know know too much about him, but um, I have that in my Amazon wish list, but I have not. It's I haven't it's pulled the trigger on yet. Fantastic book. Um, really fascinating, especially if you're into video games or ever played Doom or want to know the history of its software. But um, yeah, just just a guy who is a technologist like through and through and is not afraid to tackle problems that everyone else thinks are impossible and is still doing it right. Uh, I don't know if you read this story about him in Minecraft about how he basically like got himself access to the Minecraft source code so that he could port it to Oculus because he was dead set on it running on Oculus. Wow. Um, really? Yeah. Is is truly fascinating, right? And this is a guy who, like, man, he's been doing this for I don't even know how many years now, um, and is still like at the forefront of his industry, like leading it um, and doing amazing things. Uh, so I don't know. He's he's definitely one of the people that I looked up to. Well, for those listening to the show, to the this is the sixth time that I can at least tell by our, our notes that John Carmack was a hero too. Oh wow a big hero yeah that's interesting though to think that uh he was that set on porting it over yeah that's a fascinating story to what is any licensing issues with that is it is that like legit is that is that a cool thing to do that was kind of the crazy part uh at least in the article (laughs) that i read about it um they basically said that uh you know carmack's lawyers looked at the contract that they handed him and they were like you're basically just doing this work for them for free like you're not going to have any rights to it and he was like I, I don't care like it just has to exist like i'm so excited about this wow <laughs> yeah so what came of it i'm i'm not entirely sure like i think they demoed it at some uh at some presentation but i'm not sure where the the status of that is right now so one other thing we like to ask Alan at the end of the show is is radar. You know, we like to f- we have a weekly email we call Changelog Weekly. It's our editorialized take on our radar. And mm-hmm. so when we have a guest on, we love to learn about your radar. So what's out there, whether it's a, a technology or open source, what's out there that uh, if you had a free weekend, you'd play with it? Something you want to play with that you haven't had a chance yet. I'm I'm really excited about all of the emerging languages so i'd probably be playing around with those like i would be excited to uh try working with rust some more uh to try working with nim or elm or any of those sorts of things um rust mim what's mim elm elm Elm, okay yeah uh all of those kind of uh new and emerging languages that are approaching uh, problems yeah, Elixir. Um, they're they're all pretty exciting to me. Um, so I'd take a look at those. Um, another thing, like not in the language sphere that uh, I've been meaning to take a look at for, man, I don't know, maybe over a year now, is uh, Nix, NixOS, um, as like a better way to do configuration management. Um, the ethos around it uh, is is really appealing to me. So I'd, I'd like to spend some time actually like trying it out and seeing how well it worked. 
I feel like we've heard of NixOS, Jared. Did we mention this recently or sounds familiar? I think it's probably, you probably see it in Changelog Nightly a couple times. I've definitely heard of it, but we have not featured it in Weekly, nor have we done a show on it. So I think it's kind of, it's a good one for Radar because it's now, now it's just bubbled up again on ours. All right. Well, Alan, I think that's uh, that's a close for a show. We would obviously love to talk to you more deeply about uh, your your fun trip down open source lane with uh, Engrok. I mean, it's kind of interesting to see it start the way it did as open source, go closed, and potentially come back as maybe fair source. Who knows? But uh, yeah, who I guess knows? If we can consider that open source. I guess it's kind of we're still out on that one. It's it is still kind of I mean it's in that gray it depends area. on how you define open source, right? If it's right. like I can see the code, then it's open source. If it's it's uh, free open source, uh, then I, I don't think it is at least. Yeah. Any closing thoughts from you before we close out? Anything you left unturned that you want to mention to the listening audience? I mean, I I just really want to thank you guys for having me on here. Like, I'm, it was just such a pleasure talking to you. Cool, man. So, like, thanks. Yeah, man. We, uh, we'll have to get you slotted on GoTime, too, since you're such a Go fanatic. And you have to listen. GoTime.fm. Yeah, I will definitely check it out. That sounds awesome. All right, cool. And uh, with that, that's the show. So let's say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Thanks, Alan, for the great tool. Goodbye, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me on.